company's DNA is what makes it stand out. It guides everyone's behaviors and determines the quality of the people you have by your side, from the initial hires to the hyper growth stage. It can be the difference between a team that is indifferent and one that's all in. It's an important step for founders to translate their why into cultural principles. While these are often referred to as values, I prefer the word virtues because it implies action and not just talk. And values don't mean much unless you live them every day. This is something that Eric Santos and his co-founders paid attention to from the get-go. Similar to what Netflix culture code means to Silicon Valley founders, Resultados Digitais culture code became well-known in the Brazilian startup ecosystem. The team scaled from 30 to 100 employees in just a few months, then to 230 employees the following year. But RD's DNA remains the same as it was in the very beginning, 10 years ago. In this episode, Eric and I talk about how the founding team identified the virtues that were authentic to them, some of the difficult conversations they had up front, the challenges they faced while hiring fast, and how they operationalized these virtues at scale. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. What's up, man? How's it going? Well, good, man. I'm glad we can connect. And I know that you're a busy guy, so thank you for making the time and you remember these early days? I mean, I miss it so you're, much. You're running this this mega mega company now. <laughs> there's always chaos in no matter what, but it's a different it's kind happiness, of happiness. The you know the crazy things that we used to do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Miss that. yeah. No, that's what's the craziest thing that you can remember that you guys did in the early days? There's this funny story where we we needed to take pictures for our business cards. I saw this idea. Actually, I met the founder of WordPress. I was at an event and he handed over one of his cards to me. I was like, wow, this is genius because, you know, nobody has pictures on their business cards. And we used to go to those events and collect like 50 cards and, and then uh, don't, yeah, don't remember was. anyone after that. So we wanted to copy that idea and we, we had to take pictures for our cards. And then we went to this place here in Floripa, which is called Avenida Beira Mar, the, the Beira Mar Avenue. But it was too bright, too sunny. We couldn't find a, a good spot for the picture. And finally, we found a, like a totem that was about a meter high. And then we all had to get on our knees to be like under the thing so we could have a proper picture. So we have, we still to this day have that picture on our business cards, but we have all, uh, also a lot of pictures from the, like the behind the curtains, like the way that we, uh, to, yeah. It's funny because you're in Floripa, right? Your yeah. problem is you're, it's too sunny there. That's the conclusion. Yeah. The weather is too nice to take yeah. pictures. That's, that's when you know you're in a good place. I love those early stories. I think every entrepreneur become lore inside a company, right? And that becomes such a, an important part of the, the journey and sharing the journey with others, bringing back to the roots of, of how you get started and not forgetting that. How do you make sure that you don't forget those other people? I remember at Viva when people would, join the building we had was this big building on Consolacao in, in Sao Paulo. And I remember like really wanting to design a process that would allow people to know the roots of the story because when new people come on board, they're just like, oh, this company was just built. It's been successful from from day one. And that's never the truth, right? It's it's always yeah. struggle. Yeah. You used to have a room at the office, right? Uh, like a replica of your first office. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had we, we called it the box office and it was uh, uh, 
It was a tiny little room where Diego worked out of just basically could fit one person in there. And uh, so we recreated that office to, yeah, to, to kind of That's like really you know, cool. That's really illustrate. Cool. We have to be intentional about that. And something that we've learned recently, uh, to be honest, because we started sharing some of those, those stories on our personal accounts, like Instagram accounts, and people were reacting to that. It was insane. And then, because we turned 10 this year, 2020. So we founded the company in 20, 2010. And then when we, when we were celebrating there, we had a, a special uh, hangout with the team. And then all the, all the founders got together and we started remembering the stories you know, the team also did a very good job. They invited people to talk about the early days with us, like early investors, like first couple of clients and those kind of people. And then we recorded that. And now everybody that joins the team, it's part of the onboarding package. They, they go through that hangout that basically replicates some of the elements uh, of the early days there. But I, as I mentioned, I think we have to be intentional about that because it's really easy to forget. And we take it for granted now. But for most people, it's an important part of why they get attracted to a startup. And of course, like RD, uh, I still consider uh, the company a startup, but we have 700 employees. So it's a different beast. As, as I mentioned before, I missed the early days. And, and I think part of the, the reason that some people join startups is to kind of relive those situations that are not very common in other companies. Yeah, for sure. I mean, startup is always a startup and you always want to maintain that culture. And it's hard as you get bigger, right? Like there's more bureaucracy in a start in a, in a larger company, but it, it's key to have those kind of things, those, the essence of, of those early days. And then also you end up graduating. Like I remember we had certain values that were really critical in the beginning of the company. I guess they didn't all change, but some of them became less important because you've got to start thinking differently. It's like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had move fast and break things. When that got to a certain size, like, you, you know, there's certain, okay, we need to reassess. So you know, it's interesting. There's probably certain parts of the DNA that will never change. But then there's other parts where it's like, it's a new era sometimes and you've got to adapt. And so what are the things that you guys always, that have been close to you from the very beginning that are still very permanent in, in RD that, in terms of culture and, you know, maybe mantras or things that are, are kind of uh, fundamental in terms of, of the culture? Yeah, I think it touched the point where usually companies, they tend to drift away from their core values as they grow. And it's easy to do that, by the way. But in our case, I think that the practices and processes have changed a lot. But I think uh, I'm proud to say that we our core values haven't changed that much. We have a very strong and explicit culture. We we try to bring those values into uh, the daily practice every day. And one of the values that we we have here is we call it the A team. And what that means is that we know that we are in a new industry, and we're basically writing the playbook. So we cannot find people that are ready to join the company in most cases. So we have to bet on talent. And even if that means that, oh, if I have somebody who is very experienced on this side and doesn't have that much of, of a potential, and, and I have a raw talent on this side, but with uh, little experience, I'll take the talent every day of the week. This is still the case for us. Like, and we have uh, developed a lot of people 
some of them are not in the company anymore, but I think it's part of the process too. Especially now where we have we have more money, we, we can hire people from bigger companies in the market. We have this temptation of hiring for expertise or experience, but we stick to our guns. We're still bad on talent. And it's good to see that a lot of the, the mid-level, senior-level leaders of the company are people who grew with us in these years. So this is one aspect that I think hasn't changed. And also this culture of benchmarking, being data-driven, freak about data, customer-first too. So I think those aspects... They have changed in terms of how we do them on a daily basis, but uh, the essence is still there. How did you know like, how to define the core values like in the beginning? Like, was it based on your experience? The reason why I ask is like, I've started a bunch of companies. I go back to like the first company I started and I'm going to write down these like core values and, and I look back and it's kind of embarrassing, but like I had worked at a startup when I was 19 and and it was a really great company and they, I learned a lot from them. And then I went and started my company a couple of years after that, you know, in my early 20s. I remember defining the core values and I kind of just like borrowed the core values from the last company because I didn't really have any core values at that point because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, right? And yeah. so how did that come about for you? Like when did you realize that like, I mean, you guys are obsessed with customers. It's on display with, you know, the customer success that is a big part of the business you built. How did you know these things were important? And like, what was the experience to get there? It's funny because when I was in college, I had I was lucky to have some good experience with uh, NGOs. And the thing about working at an NGO is that if you're, if you're not there for the cause, for the mission, what the hell are you doing there? Because there's no money involved. In, and uh, I learned a lot about this cultural side of the business, working in those organizations. And then when I started my first company, my former partner was also very uh, strong about values and culture. And we had a very good debate back then. And we established our six values of that company, established a lot of process on top of those values. And the funny thing is that when I started that company, I was 22. I was pretty much just like you like you mentioned, naive about how those things actually worked. But we had learned a lot in those years. So that company, I started the company in 2003, uh, sold my shares in 2010. So it was a seven-year, eight-year run there. And then when we started RD, I actually brought two people that had worked with me, that company, and other two people that had worked with me before. So the five founders of RD, we used to get along really well. Like we had the same like working principles and, and, and uh, we basically like we didn't need to, we didn't need a culture code there. We were very much aligned back then. But the problem is like 2013, when we started hiring people more aggressively, I remember one time that I, I realized that, oh my God, like we have 25 people and probably by the end of the year, we'll have about 100 we have a lot more new people than all the, the rest combined. And I started seeing some people like doing things that weren't necessarily aligned with things that we believed in. So that was the perfect timing for us to get together and say, okay, let's put our beliefs and, and values on a paper. Let's have a debate about that. Let's establish that. And uh, that's when we released our cultural code. And I remember when that when we 
I can talk about the process, but we, at the end of the day, we, we released this document, like a hundred page document, a hundred page slide deck with our culture code that's uh, public uh, now. And uh, I remember when we presented that to the team, this reaction was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much what we do. So that was a relief for me because like, it wasn't something like theoretical in my mind that I wanted to look good on paper and all on a, to have a board on the wall. But it actually reflected what we, we were doing as a company. So the big challenge is how do we keep strengthening those values over time? So that's still one of the big challenges for me as a CEO today. It's one of the most important roles of a CEO. When I think about values, I've actually been recently using the word virtues more because you know, values feel aspirational and it's, you know, like something that you, you want to achieve. And, you know, the thing that you just highlighted, which I think illustrates this perfectly is that you presented this to your team and then all of a sudden everyone's like, yeah, that's pretty much what we do. And what that means is that those are behaviors, right? So I think the difference between the virtues and values question is founders get this wrong. Sometimes they think that it's all about just like, just defining it. And at the end of the day, it's about the behavior and the actions. Something that we did in Viveral, which resonates with some of the stuff that you just mentioned is, I remember like we had, you know, defined some core values and we'd, similar to you, it was like, we kind of hope that everyone was doing this. But when we kind of refined that a little bit and one, it's articulated better, we did an exercise where we said, okay, it was actually Hanata Lorenz from my team who, who ran HR and then she's now the COO of Grupo Zap. She did an exercise where we, People that we felt like really demonstrated a lot of the values that we, you know, appreciated. She interviewed, you know, in small groups. Like the team was pretty small at that point. If you were going to Mars, who would you take and why? And it's a sort of a new civilization. And what was cool about that is, I would take Andre because Andre displayed session with, you know, serving the customer well. Or and so you got like descriptions of qualities and behaviors. And to me, that's the essence of culture. It's, it's how you behave. So how do you scale that, man? <laughs> like you're yeah, 700 I, people. I, I, totally, I, I, <laughs> I totally agree with you. And another thing that I, I like to add on, on top of that is that for me, values have to have trade-offs because it's really easy to say something that, oh, I value this. And then what does that mean exactly? Like in case of a conflict, where do you stand? So... In our case, for instance, one of our values is called excellence. But excellence stands for benchmarking, for learning the best practice from other companies. The trade-off there is that it kind of slows innovation internally. It slows risk-taking because you're always looking outside and, and trying to see the best practice. By definition, you're not thinking by yourself first. You can do that later as a process, but that's a trade-off. And customer first is the same thing. Like we have, when we say customer first is that we want customers for life and we want our customers to grow with us. Even if that means that we need to a momentary loss in terms of revenue, or if we have a, you know, a, 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 an issue with somebody from the, from our team. So those things have trade-offs and it, the more, my, my view, the more trade-offs the values have, the clear it is for the people to act on those values rather than just being something like fluffy that, you know, everybody says, but they don't actually practice that. And I think the the key to scale that over time, at least in our case, is trying to translate the process of the company 
or trying to mirror the values into the process of the company. Because when you do performance review of every employee in the company, when we come up with the methodology for running a project, when we establish a dashboard or whatever, like the values have to be there. Otherwise, you have separate tracks internally. You have the process and then you have the values and people don't know what's more important. If the values are kind of embedded in the process, then you're good to go because they don't, they have to, do, to know the whys of the values, but they just have to trust the process and follow the processes there. So it's a good way to scale the values over time. But again, it's a never ending exercise. Like you always have to rethink, okay, I'm not, I'm not being that good at this value. How can I improve that? How can I explain this to the, to the team? How can we make examples out of this value? So it's always like work in progress. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. It doesn't get easier. Um, I, I listened to another podcast and I, and I heard you talk a little bit more about kind of the early days of your customer discovery and product development in the beginning. And I enjoyed hearing talk a little bit more about how you were able to go out and you guys kind of sold products before you had them, right? I think that's a really important strategy for particularly you know, B2B companies early on because you're evaluating demand and then people love to, you know, my classic mistake I made was early on in my entrepreneurial journey, I built a crazy product and spent, you know, months doing it and then launched it and then no one, no one, no one used it. And, you know, that was before Lean Startup, before all these other kind of methodologies that came about. But you did that, you learned a bunch what were the main findings in those early days when you had those customer discovery and how did they impact the decisions in the first couple of years? I was a big proponent of lean startup methodologies back then. Uh, I used to read a lot, uh, guys like Eric Ries and Steve Blank. And uh, I think I was one of the first people in Brazil to write about that. I still have a blog about lean startup. I uh, haven't written there for probably 10 years now. but um, So I, I, I totally got that because my mistakes from my previous company were related to that, related to the fact that I was too in, uh, in love with the technology and with the idea of a product and uh, didn't pay enough attention to validating that with the customer. I would get to the point where we would invest one year in a project just to find out that nobody really cared about that. So... When I first saw the, this concept of Lean Startup, it really resonated with me. The tricky thing about RD in the beginning was that the vision that we had for the company, and by the way, Lean Startup does not necessarily mean that you give up on having a broader plan or a big vision. It's just a way to get there, right? But the big thing for us is that our vision was to have all this all-in-one marketing platform which is a you know a difficult thing to build it takes time but at the same time like we wanted to test that we wanted to make sure that we were heading in the right direction the way that we decided to test that value proposition was okay i cannot just build a very specific part of the product and try to test that software component because in that case, I'll be testing whether I could be an email marketing provider or a landing page provider. So we were, you'll be testing the wrong thing. So for us, we needed to test the, the value proposition, the big value proposition, which is having an all-in-one integrated and powerful marketing platform. And how did we do that? 
Like we, we didn't have one line of code yet. So I decided to basically sell what the software would offer someday, but we didn't have anything yet. So what we thought the software would uh, have one day is that we thought the software would have like a social media tool, an SEO tool, uh, email marketing tool, a landing page tool, a CRM tool, an analytics tool. So all those things we thought that, that someday the software will have. And then we will sell the, the software, the non-existent software, and we'll do all those things manually on the back end. I remember like one of our first customers, uh, this company called Soap. I don't know if you know, they make, uh, they help people make presentations. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I remember that when I pitched the product to them and I, I didn't charge them for consulting or anything. I knew that I could have an agency if I wanted, but that's not what I wanted to build. I was just pitching them for, okay, you pay 200 bucks per month. You get this report, you get this email marketing campaign, you get this landing page, you get this and that, like that would cost at least 5,000 reais per month if I were charging as an agency. But I wanted to do that by myself because I wanted to test whether they would get the results. They would, If they wouldn't get the results by us doing the job for them, they would never get the results by using a software that allowed them to do that. So that way we calibrated a, a lot better the real demand, the real struggles that they had, the level of complexity of the product, the fine-tuning of the target market, because we sell to SMBs, but SMBs is a very broad segment. So we learned what kind of SMBs weren't the good fit and what kind of SMBs were you know, the best fit for, for the early days. So all those things we learned because we're really close to the customers. And of course, like over time, trying to automate the process and, and develop the software to eventually deliver that value. So it took us a couple of years to get to that point. And uh, even in 2012, when we finally released the RD station for the first time, I mean, I'm still embarrassed by that version of the software. Like, didn't have anything. We felt that, okay, this is ready for at least, we're, we're not too embarrassed to put a price on it. So let's try to do that and then evolve from there. So those were the, the, the early couple of years. And, uh, and I still classify those years as the problem solution fit discovery. For sure. Yeah. And if you're not embarrassed, you know, by your first product, you waited too long, as they say, as you know, as they say, I think yeah. Paul Graham says that. One question I had around the, so you had clarity, you were going to be a venture backed business because you saw the opportunity. You saw the, the market is huge, that uh, customers are underserved and you, you saw that it could be a, a billion dollar, you know, billion plus company. Did you have that alignment with, you know, you had five, four co-founders, five of you. I see a lot of co-founders today. They don't actually have that conversation before they get going. And then all of a sudden, they wake up a year later and, and one, they forget to vest their shares, which every founder, when you're starting a company, you should vest with your co-founders. Life happens, uh, divorces happen, interests change. There's just like, there's an infinite number of things that can happen. How did you address that with your co-founders? I mean, maybe you don't have to do it every time. I would recommend it. Some people get lucky and, and don't discuss it and then it's not a problem. And I've seen the opposite happen many times. In your case, how much alignment was there between 
five co-founders, which is a pretty large number. Uh, and did you all have that discussion? This is what we're setting out to do. I absolutely agree with you. Not only on the vesting part, I, I also had problems with that in my previous company, but also in terms of uh, having that alignment up front. We did have a conversation. By the way, I think one of the best things that we did in the beginning was to really take the time to have the deep conversations about those kind of things, like the outcomes that we could see for the company. We would deal with conflict, how to separate the roles of founders versus executives versus shareholders. So I think a lot of the things that we did right along the way you can tie back to the, those conversations in the early days. It seems like a waste of time, but it's for me, it's one of the most important things that you can do as an entrepreneur. And we, we did have those conversations. And I, I think everybody was aligned in the sense that we all had good opportunities. We were all working. We were all working on projects that had good potential. But this seemed to have a greater potential and the only way to realize that was that, okay, let's, let's go big here. Let's aim high. Also, because we were five co-founders, it will only make sense to us financially to aim big there. And of course, we have different participation in the company, different stakes there, but like the company had to grow a lot for the project to be meaningful financially for everyone involved. It was a good alignment in the beginning, but uh, you're right that I think that most entrepreneurs, and I think people are afraid to having the, the, the conversation. And I don't know why they're, they're afraid of having that conversation, but I think they should. You're postponing in inevitable challenges if you don't address it up front. And it's, it can be a lot worse if you don't have alignment. And at least you want to know early, right? If you, yeah, you want to know just how. Like, just <laughs> like drafting a prenup. Like you don't, <laughs> it's a weird thing. Like you're about to get married and you're discussing a prenup, but it's the best timing for, for that discussion. Cause you don't want to discuss, you know, separation, you know, five years from now where, you know, people are mad at each other and it feels weird, but uh, it's the best time to get that alignment. Yeah. You mentioned like the equity piece. There's always a mentality that I see with like new founders where they're starting something new this whole idea of like 50-50. What's your advice to founders that are starting something? Obviously, the situation is highly dependent on the experience of the founders. Is someone putting money in? Like there's other variables. What is your sense in how to think about uh, equity distribution early on? And what advice or lessons can you share? Yeah, that's another tricky one. But you mentioned a few factors that should be taken into account. I think experience and uh, and uh, cost of opportunity for for each person. Like if there is somebody who is more experienced, has more connections, has been on the market for longer, versus somebody who is just out of college, they clearly have different opportunity costs there. Money involved. Like if anybody is putting money into the business, it should be considered too. And also level of involvement with the company. And I am a big proponent of not having co-founders that are not full-time in the business. Biggest mistake that I see in companies that have a crappy cap table is that they, you know, they got together like three people, but only one worked full-time. And then the other two like helped a little bit in the beginning and put some money in. And now they have like equal participation and the guy cannot raise money because already has like only 33% of the company. He's doing all the work. 
I think for me, it's a really important part. Of course, you can have an angel investor in the beginning, but you're not going to take a third of the company. So for me, those are factors that should be considered. And then over time, like when you start having this dual relationship with the company, in one way you're a Zach, another way you're a founder, I think it's good to set the market value for the function that you have. And whatever gap that you have from the market value, use that as a, as a way to get more options for the company or as a way to increase your participation there. Because I think it's a fair way to separate the founder role versus the executive role, especially because people develop in different ways in the company. They take on uh, different responsibilities. So it's a good way to do that after, after a while. But in the beginning, I think those factors are the most important ones. How do you think about compensation in early stage startups? In my case, when I started at Viveral and my other companies, obviously you start out, you don't have any money, you don't pay yourself anything really, right? And then, but when you start raising capital, let's, let's go through like the Series A, for example. How did you deal with compensation for you, other founders? And then when you start making those executive hires, how did you think about attracting really good people when you're not able to pay them a really high salary? So how did you think about salary for founders and and salary first kind of executive hires compensation because or compensation yeah. the combination of salary and equity right yeah it's hard in the beginning because you don't have any references and then for me it's highly dependable of the specific situation of each founder in our case like we were young we didn't have families we didn't have like uh, babies and kids and uh so it was easier for us to uh, not take any salary for some time. And of course, like we were living in a small apartments, like sharing an apartment with uh, other roommates. So like everybody had a low cost of living. So it was easier to set it up like that. And then after a while, we, after we raised our Series A, that's when we started uh, taking salaries. We had that conversation with the fund as well. The goal there was, okay, we don't need salaries like market like market value salaries. We need this, but our value is here. Like we need X per month, but we actually think of ourselves as uh, 2X uh, per month in terms of value. So this X of Delta translate that into stock options or option-based compensation. So we did that uh, for a while. And then like every new round or any major milestone that we would hit as a company in terms of revenue and ability to pay ourselves like a normal salary, we would try to adjust that salary a little bit. Because I think the main, the main assumption there is that, okay, you don't have to take a lot of money if you don't need to. But at the same time, like, why do I want somebody working for me, even if they're founders, they're basically like, thinking, oh my God, if I move to other opportunity, I'll be better off to have like a normal life, like to have a normal apartment where I'm getting married, those kind of things that also usually follow the, the trajectory of any startup. So we've been adjusting that over time. It's, the, it's a gradual process. It has been a gradual process for us. In terms of uh, hiring executives, in our case, it took some time for us to really go for external hires and some uh, lead functions. At that time, we were able to pay a decent amount of uh, money uh, in terms of salary. 
nothing compared to what they're making there and their other companies, especially when they hire people from you know, Microsoft or uh, Salesforce or Oracle. It, you cannot compete with those guys head-to-head. In our case, it was all about the mission, about the fact that also they wanted to have a lead role in a company that they are actually the multinational. That's a, a joke that we use here because when they work for Salesforce, when they work for Oracle, the playbook is built in the US. They're just replicating the playbook and they're just a part of the, the organization here. Here at RD, they're building the playbook. You know, They're the ones responsible for, for steering the organization there. Something that's attractive to some execs of those companies, but of course, like you have to balance the the cash base versus stock based compensation for the whole thing to make sense. I think we've been able to adjust that over time. In the early days, we'll have to give a lot more stock versus cash. Now it's a lot more cash versus stock, but it, I think it's aligned with the trajectory of the company too. Yeah, when you started out as founder, you know, CEO, C-level team, you're setting the bar for salaries, right? So if you go out and pay yourself, you know, a bunch of money, like you're basically just, you're setting the bar here up high where you're expected to pay everyone a lot of money. So I think that I was always aware of that. I always tried to keep, take a low salary because, you know, frankly, I wanted to set the, the precedent. Same goes along lines of like, you know, business travel, like I never flew business class, all those things. And I even think that people forget about details. Like I was always very careful on even the hotel that I booked in the, particularly in the early days. And of course you want to be comfortable, but at the same time, if you're staying at the, the Fasano or whatever, you're sending a message to the, you know, your head of finance, like, okay, money isn't that important. And it's more important that there's, you know, comfort. So those are all like, and those go back to culture, right? Like that's behaviors, right? You could say, oh, we're really value-oriented. But if you do something different and you send a, a message that's different in the organization, that's something that has a, a huge impact. So thanks for sharing your, your thoughts about kind of compensation in general. And, and it's a tricky one as you, as you grow. And I'm sure you've had to adjust based on your recruiting people that, are, that are, come from enterprise sales or big companies, their expectations. I think the one thing you said that's really important is that people are attracted to the playbook, right? and building the playbook. They self-select because if they want a cushy job, they go somewhere else and they're attracted to the opportunity. How did you identify those people that did it just kind of naturally happen? Did you share the challenge? And then the people that got excited, like what did you find those people that, you know, were mission oriented and, and how did you interview for that? This is something that I think we've learned over the years because uh, we've made some mistakes there. And I think it's natural, by the way. But two things uh, stand out for me in terms of how you look for execs to join the mission. One thing is that whether they've had any entrepreneurial experience in their career. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't have to be like they started a company or they've been a startup founder sometime, but if they've been a part of a startup story, even inside a big company, at least they know how it is to deal with uncertainty, which is the case for most startups. Because if you, if you go to a Microsoft, like if you hire somebody who's been there for 20 years, Microsoft is a juggernaut. Like everything is figured out. Like the company is very stable, very predictable. 
course, there are some new initiatives there, but you know, in general, people don't have to deal with uncertainty anymore. But for instance, our VP of marketing, Bernardo, I hired him from Oracle, but he used to be the head of marketing at LinkedIn Latin. So LinkedIn wasn't a small company either. But when they started LinkedIn in Brazil, he was the third hire of the company. So they basically built this startup, like they grew from three people to 200 people in, in a few years. So he knew what it was like to grow from three people to 200 people, even though he was part of a giant organization. Like, so a lot of things that we go through as startup as X have to do with uh, how to deal with uncertainty, how to create scenarios, how to adapt, and those kind of things that usually the big companies don't have to. And the second thing that I look for is, does that person have the right skill set and right like attitude for the specific phase that we're, we're going through right now? Because I've made a mistake of hiring people too early. They were too senior for the stage that we were at. And some people that I'm still friends with, you know, have very good relationship, but they didn't work at our, they didn't work out at RD. And they didn't because we both made a mistake of thinking that his or her experience would translate well in that context when we had 50 people and it didn't. But the same person would be, I'm sure they'll be very successful a few years later in the company. And uh, it's really hard to adjust that because if you hire somebody like for the stage that we are right now, back to the to the compensation and the resource uh, conversation, you know, if I hire a guy like Bernardo, my VP of market, he needs to have resource to hire directors under him. Otherwise, he cannot do a good job. But he can only be successful now at RD. He, he wouldn't be successful three or four years ago. And frankly, I'm not sure he's going to be successful 10 years from now. Probably we're going to need somebody else like who has done you know, the next phase. Of course, I, I try to stretch people as much as I can. And I try to stretch myself to maintain this position as well. But uh, I think the best and it's difficult, but I think the best thing in terms of finding the right exec is that do they have what it takes to get the organization from point A, where the organization is now, to point B, where the next big milestone is? If they're the right person for the right stage, I think it's a good bet. They have the, the entrepreneurial experience somehow. There's always a temptation early on when you're starting out to try to bring that big executive in to like slide into what you're building. And that rarely works. Um, I mean, I remember in case, I, you know, a few hires that I made, this is just inexperience in hiring, but hiring someone and then day three, they're like, okay, here's the org chart that I need to get this done. And it's like, no, no, no. it's you and one person going to be building the spreadsheet. I think every startup founder that's scaled at some point has made that mistake because there's the allure of like, working for a sexy company that's really big and, you know, maybe it brings some brand cachet and credibility to what you're doing. But I once heard the convention, like this wisdom of like, oh, you got to hire for 18 months from now. And actually, I hate that advice. I, I, you need to hire for what you need today. Yeah. And, and it's much easier for Bernardo to scale to his next, next level that he needs than to bring someone that doesn't fit at the time and try to put a, you know, a square peg in a round hole, you know? And sometimes the blame is on the VCs too, because they, they feel that entrepreneurs need some kind of adult supervision. Yes. Uh, so they want to bring the big guns and it doesn't work. 
like it doesn't work exactly what you, you just described. Yeah, I totally agree. These are all things that are just, you know, in development and everyone's learning. And I think part of the, the purpose of this podcast is to to share these stories, right? Because I once talked to an investor and during a very hard moment in our company, I reluctantly kind of shared some tough news and the investor was like, in this case, a very seasoned, you know, Silicon Valley investor was like, not surprised at all. I've seen this movie before. And it's just, a, it's a question of, you know, how things play out eventually. And they're usually not new problems. They're just, they're new people experiencing the, the same problems that exist. Of course, there's sometimes new problems, but most things as a founder that's scaled the company and now invested in a bunch of companies, I always get surprised by how many kind of similar patterns that I see in the challenges. So uh, that's why it's great to have other people around the table that have been there. And speaking to that is kind of we transition and you are now a veteran, right? Like it's fun to say that, you know, you go back to 2010. I remember our trip back in, went out to Microsoft together when Gustavo Caetano organized that trip. And that was early days. I remember sitting in the bar with you talking about what you're building. And it was like, you know, fun to, fun to see the evolution because that was, you had some success at that point, but I mean, we weren't talking like tens of thousands of customers and RD Summit, which is a landmark event. And we could probably have a whole other podcast about adapting to new times, but we're going to save that for another chat. So now that you're this experienced guy that I know that you're very involved in Endeavor, you're, you have a generous spirit in general, like f- founders see you as a resource uh, because you, you take the time and I know you care about the ecosystem. How do you think this Brazilian LATAM you're not just a Brazil company, you're a regional play. How does this Latin American startup ecosystem evolve? And what are the roles of mentors, angel investors? And how do we really just build out this ecosystem kind of looking for the next decade? It's amazing when, when I look back and think about the ecosystem, like 15 years from now, when I started my first company, that there was basically nothing here, like no angel investings, no VCs, no, you know, no lawyers, no nothing like uh and even in florianopolis there were a generation of uh tech entrepreneurs that built their software companies here like first what we call the first generation of software companies here that i admired them a lot because they were able to build big companies relative to their time without any resource basically and then when we when we started rd i think it was a transition of the ecosystem that has accelerated a lot in the last 10 years. You know, just back to your point, I remember that trip to, to Seattle. And uh, I, I remember that my first pitch to any VC about the idea of RD, a vision, was at BR New Tech event that Betty and Tripa yeah. said. And uh, like that was 10 years ago. There was nothing there. Like th- those guys were trying to, you know, kind of, bring together the community, the first few investors that were there, like first good success cases in terms of entrepreneurs. So it's amazing to see how the the ecosystem has evolved the last 10 years. I think we have all the parts in place. Uh, we have great cases. We have entrepreneurs that have had exits and are giving back to the ecosystem as investors or even starting new companies and doing much better in this time around. Frankly, I think that what I call the third generation of tech entrepreneurs now, because I consider us as a second part of the second generation, like the cohort that started companies in 2010, 2011, 
I think the most recent cohort of people who got started, in, you know, two, three, four years from now, they are much better entrepreneurs than we were in the early days. Adjusted to time, they are much better entrepreneurs. So I'm very bullish on the ecosystem because I think that these people who have been part of this second generation, they're still young. Like we are still young. We have still lots of things to do in, in the ecosystem. And these new cohorts of entrepreneurs are much, much, much better. I don't see anything missing from the best entrepreneurs in the Valley, for instance. And by the way, most of them are actually learning a lot from the cases in the Valley. Probably the, the most fundamental lesson of, of uh, Silicon Valley, which is we share, we collaborate, we try to build things together, we try to support each other. And they definitely see this in the communities that I hang out. Endeavor is definitely one good example. Like I have great friends there and I know that I can share whatever problem that I have. Like people no, won't use that against me or they, they're going to support me. So I think this spirit of collaboration or building something bigger together is present here in Brazil at this moment. So I'm very bullish of what we're going to achieve together in the next 10, 20 years. Well, thank you for sharing your insight, your experience. That's uh, something that's very critical, as you mentioned. Part of the ethos of the Silicon Valley, what's made it so successful is the willingness to kind of openly share and exchange experiences. And that's one of my personal objectives that I have for the region. I mean, Latin America has been incredibly good to me. I lived in Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, and I've learned so much in the region. And that's where my kind of entrepreneurial journey started. And so part of my objective is to give back and reinvest in, in an ecosystem that I think is at its very early stages. And as you said, the cohort that came after us is super impressive. So I feel lucky to get to learn from all those people building the next generation of startups. Well, thank you for your time. And I look forward to tapping you as a resource as I figure out how to build this community. And I want to actually, you know, you're a community builder at heart is what you really did. I mean, if you think about what RD is, it's, it's a community. I mean, you're a community-driven product. And so there's definitely, I've got a, a few things to learn from you. And so I'm looking forward to having more conversations in the future, closing the information gap that's out there and empowering the next generation of founders. So thank you for sharing. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Uh, happy to contribute anyway again. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Eric Santos, co-founder of Resultados Digitais. Each week, we'll be talking to great founders and investors like him. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out latitude.com to find out more about the Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Until next time.